Book Fifteen, Part One of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book Five, A.D. sixty-two through sixty-five, Part One. Vologeses, king of Parthia, invades Armenia. Meanwhile the Parthian king, Vologeses, when he heard of Corbulo's achievements and of a foreign prince, Tigranes, having been set over Armenia, though he longed at the same time to avenge the majesty of the Arsacids, which had been insulted by the expulsion of his brother Tiradides, was on the other hand drawn to different thoughts as he reflected on the greatness of Rome, and felt reverence for a hitherto unbroken treaty. Naturally irresolute, he was now hampered by a revolt of the Hyrcanians, a powerful tribe, and by several wars arising out of it. Suddenly, as he was wavering, fresh and further tidings of disgrace goaded him to action. Tigranes, quitting Armenia, had ravaged the Adiabeni, a people on its border, too extensively and continuously for mere plundering raids. The chief men of the tribes were indignant at having fallen into such contempt that they were victims to the inroads not, indeed, of a Roman general, but of a daring hostage, who for so many years had been numbered among slaves. Their anger was inflamed by Monobazus, who ruled the Adibeni, and repeatedly asked what protection he was to seek, and from what quarter. Already, he said, Armenia has been given up, and its borders are being wrested from us, and unless the Parthians help us, we shall find that subjection to Rome is lighter for those who surrender than for the conquered. Tiradides, too, exile as he was from his kingdom, by his silence or very moderate complaints made the deeper impression. It is not, he urged, by weak inaction that great empires are held together. There must be the struggle of brave men in arms. Might is right with those who are at the summit of power. And though it is the glory of a private house to keep its own, it is the glory of a king to fight for the possession of others. Moved by these considerations, Vologeses called a council, placed Tiradides by his side, and began to speak as follows. This man before you, born from the same father as myself, having waived in my favour, on the ground of age, the highest title of all, was established by me in the possession of Armenia, which is accounted the third grade of power. As for Medea, Pecorus was already in possession of it. And I thought to myself that I had duly arranged our family and home as to guard against the old feuds and rivalries of brothers. The Romans thwart me, and though they never have with success to themselves disturbed the peace between us, they are now again breaking it to their own destruction. I will not attempt to deny one thing. It was by just dealing rather than by bloodshed, by having a good cause rather than by arms, that I had wished to retain what my ancestors had won. If I have sinned through irresolution, my valour shall make amends for it. Assuredly your strength and renown are at their height, and you have, in addition, the repute of obedience, which the greatest of mortals must not despise, and which the gods highly esteem. As he spoke, he encircled Tiradates' brow with a diadem, and to Monesus, a noble, he entrusted a highly efficient body of cavalry, which was the king's customary escort, giving him also some auxiliaries from the Adiabeni, and orders that Tigranes was to be driven out of Armenia. He would himself abandon his feud with the Hyrcanians, and raise his own national force in all its warlike strength by way of menace to the Roman provinces. When Corbulo had heard all this from messengers he could trust, he sent two legions under Veulanus Severus and Vettius Bolinus to the support of Tigranes, 
with secret instructions that they were to conduct all their operations with deliberation rather than despatch, as he would prefer to sustain rather than to make war. And, indeed, he had written to the emperor that a general was wanted especially for the defence of Armenia, and that Syria, threatened as it was by Vologeses, was in yet more eminent peril. Meanwhile he posted his remaining legions on the bank of the Euphrates, armed a hastily collected force of provincials, and occupied with troops the enemy's approaches. And as the country was deficient in water, he established forts to guard the wells, and concealed some of the streams with heaps of sand. While Corbulo was thus preparing for the defence of Syria, Monesus rapidly pushed on his forces to anticipate the rumour of his advance, but he did not any the more find Tigranes unaware of or unprepared for his movement. He had in fact occupied Tigranocerta, a city strong from the multitude of its defenders and the vastness of its fortifications. In addition, the river Nisiphorius, the breadth of which is far from contemptible, circled a portion of its walls, and a wide fosse was drawn where they distrusted the protection of the stream. There were some soldiers, too, and supplies previously provided. In the conveyance of these a few men had hurried on too eagerly, and having been surprised by a sudden attack from the enemy, had inspired their comrades with rage rather than fear. But the Parthian has not the daring in close combat needed for a successful siege. His thin showers of arrows do not alarm men within walls, and only disappoint himself. The Adiabeni, when they had begun to advance their scaling ladders and engines, were easily driven back, and then cut down by a sally of our men. Corbulo, however, notwithstanding his successes, thought he must use his good fortune with moderation, and sent Vologeses a message of remonstrance against the violence done to a Roman province, and the blockade of an allied and friendly king and of Roman cohorts. He had better give up the siege, or he, Corbulo, too, would encamp in his territory as on hostile ground. Casperius, a centurion selected for this mission, had an interview with the king at the town Nisibis, thirty-seven miles distant from Tigranocerta, and with fearless spirit announced his message. With Vologeses it was an old and deep conviction that he should shun the arms of Rome. Nor was the present going smoothly with him. The siege was a failure, Tigranes was safe with his troops and supplies, those who had undertaken the storming of the palace had been routed, legions had been sent into Armenia, and other legions were ready to rush to the attack on behalf of Syria, while his own cavalry was crippled by want of food. A host of locusts, suddenly appearing, had devoured every blade of grass and every leaf. And so, hiding his fear and presenting a more conciliatory attitude, he replied that he would send envoys to the Roman Emperor for the possession of Armenia, and the conclusion of a lasting peace. He ordered Moneses to leave Tigranocerta, while he himself retired. Many spoke highly of these results, as due to the king's alarm and the threats of Corbulo, and as splendid successes. Others explained them as a secret understanding, that with the cessation of war on both sides and the departure of Vologeses, Tigranes also was to quit Armenia. Why, it was asked, had the Roman army been withdrawn from Tigranocerta? Why had they abandoned in peace what they had defended in war? Was it better for them to have wintered on the confines of Cappadocia, in hastily constructed huts, than in the capital of a kingdom lately recovered? There had been, in short, a suspension of arms, in order that Vologeses might fight some other foe than Corbulo, and that Corbulo might not further risk the glory he had earned in so many years. For, as I have related, he had asked for a general exclusively for the defence of Armenia, and it was heard that Cassianus Paetus was on his way. 
and indeed he had now arrived, and the army was thus divided, the fourth and twelfth legions, with the fifth which had lately been raised in Moesia and the auxiliaries from Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia, were under the command of Paetus, while the third, sixth, and tenth legions, and the old soldiery of Syria, remained with Corbulo. All else they were to share or divide between them according to circumstances. But as Corbulo could not endure a rival, so Paetus, who would have been sufficiently honoured by ranking second to him, disparaged the results of the war, and said repeatedly that there had been no bloodshed or spoil, that the sieges of cities were sieges only in name, and that he would soon impose on the conquered tribute and laws and Roman administration, instead of the empty shadow of a king. About the same time the envoys of Vologeses, who had been sent, as I have related, to the emperor, returned without success, and the Parthians made open war. Nor did Paetus decline the challenge, but with two legions, the fourth and the twelfth, the first of which was then commanded by Funicillanus Vetonianus, and the second by Calavius Sabinus, entered Armenia, with unlucky omen. In the passage of the Euphrates, which they crossed by bridge, a horse which carried the consul's official emblems took fright without any apparent cause, and fled to the rear. A victim, too, standing by some of the winter tents, which were being fortified, broke its way through them, when the work was but half finished, and got clear of the entrenchments. Then again, the soldiers' javelins gleamed with light, a prodigy the more significant because the Parthian foe fights with missiles. Paetus, however, despising omens, before he had yet thoroughly fortified his winter camp or provided for his corn supply, hurried his army across Mount Taurus, for the recovery, as he gave out, of Tigranocerta, and the ravaging of the country which Corbulo had left untouched. Some forts, too, were taken, and some glory as well as plunder had been secured, if only he had enjoyed his glory modestly and his plunder with vigilance. While he was overrunning in tedious expeditions districts which could not be held, the supplies which had been captured were spoiled, and as winter was now at hand, he led back his army and wrote a letter to the emperor, as if the war was finished, in pompous language, but barren of facts. Meanwhile, Corbulo occupied the bank of the Euphrates, which he had never neglected, with troops at closer intervals. That he might have no hindrance in the throwing a bridge over it from the enemy's cavalry, which was already scouring the adjoining plains with a formidable display, he launched on the river some vessels of remarkable size, linked together by beams, with towers rising from their decks, and with catapults and ballistas he drove off the barbarians. The stones and spears penetrated their host at a range beyond the reach of the opposing volleys of arrows. The bridge was then completed, and the hills facing us were occupied by our auxiliary infantry, then by the entrenchments of the legions, with such rapidity and such a display of force that the Parthians, giving up their preparations for the invasion of Syria, concentrated all their hopes on Armenia. Paetus, ignorant of the impending danger, was keeping the fifth legion at a distance in Pontus. The rest he had weakened by indiscriminate furloughs, till it was heard that Vologeses was approaching with a powerful force bent on war. He summoned the twelfth legion, and then it was discovered the numerical feebleness of the source from which he had hoped for the repute of an augmented army. Yet even thus the camp might have been held, and the Parthian foe baffled, by protracting the war, had Paetus stood firm either by his own counsels or by those of others. But though military men had put him on his guard against imminent disasters, still, not wishing to seem to need the advice of others, he would fall back on some quite different and inferior plan. 
So now, leaving his winter quarters, and examining that not the fosse or the rampart, but the men's bodies and weapons were given him for facing the foe, he led out his legions, as if he meant to fight a battle. Then, after losing a centurion and a few soldiers, whom he had sent on advance to reconnoitre the enemy's forces, he returned in alarm. And as Volagises had not pressed his advantage with much vigour, Paetus once again, with a vain confidence, posted three thousand chosen infantry on the adjacent ridge of the Taurus, in order to bar the king's passage. He also stationed some Pannonian troopers, the flower of his cavalry, in a part of the plain. His wife and son he removed to a fortress named Arsa Mosada, with a cohort for their defence, thus dispersing the troops which, if kept together, could easily have checked the desultory skirmishes of the enemy. He could, it is said, scarcely be driven to confess to Corbulo how the enemy was pressing him. Corbulo made no haste, that when the dangers thickened, the glory of the rescue might be enhanced. Yet he ordered one thousand men from each of his three legions, with eight hundred cavalry, and an equal number of infantry, to be in instant readiness. Volagises, meanwhile, though he had heard that the roads were blocked by Paetus, here with infantry, there with cavalry, did not alter his plan, but drove off the latter by the menace of an attack, and crushed the legionnaires, only one centurion of whom, Tarquitius Crescens, dared to defend a tower in which he was keeping guard. He had often sallied out, and cut to pieces such of the barbarians as came up close to the walls, till he was overwhelmed with volleys of firebrands. Every foot-soldier still unwounded fled to remote wilds, and those who were disabled returned to the camp, exaggerating in their terror the king's valour, and the warlike strength of his tribes, everything, in short, to the simple credulity of those who trembled with like fear. Even the general did not struggle against his reverses. He had indeed wholly abandoned all the duties of a soldier, and had again sent an entreaty to Corbulo, that he would come with speed to save the standards and eagles, and the name yet left to the unfortunate army. They, meantime, he said, would hold to their fidelity while life lasted. Corbulo, perfectly fearless, left half his army in Syria to retain the forts built on the Euphrates, and taking the nearest route, which also was not deficient in supplies, marched through the country of Comagene, then through Cappadocia, and thence into Armenia. Beside the other usual accompaniments of war, his army was followed by a great number of camels laden with corn, to keep off famine as well as the enemy. The first he met of the defeated army was Pastius, a first-rank centurion, then many of the soldiers, whom, when they pleaded various excuses for flight, he advised to return to their standard and throw themselves on the mercy of Paetus. For himself, he said, he had no forgiveness but for the victorious. As he spoke, he went up to his legions, cheering them and reminding them of their past career, and pointing the way to new glory. It was not to villages or towns of Armenia, but to a Roman camp with two legions, a worthy recompense for their efforts, that they were bound. If each common soldier were to have bestowed on him by the emperor's hand the special honour of a crown for a rescued citizen, how wonderfully great the glory, when the numbers would be equal of those who had brought and of those who had received deliverance. Roused by these and like words into a common enthusiasm, and some, too, were filled with an ardour peculiarly their own by the perils of brothers and kinsfolk, they hurried on by day and night their uninterrupted march. All the more vigorously did Volagises press the besieged, now attacking the legions' entrenchments, and now again the fortress, which guarded those whose years unfitted them for war. He advanced closer than is the Parthian practice, seeking to lure the enemy to an engagement by such rashness. 
They, however, could hardly be dragged out of their tents, and would merely defend their lives, some held back by the general's order, others by their own cowardice. They seemed to be awaiting Corbulo, and, should they be overpowered by force, they had before them the examples of Candium and Numantia. Neither the Samnites, Italian people as they were, nor the Carthaginians, the rivals of the Roman Empire, were, it seemed, equally formidable, and even the men of old, with all their strength and glory, whenever fortune was adverse, had taken thought for their safety. The general, although he was overcome by the despair of his army, first wrote a letter to Vologeses, not a suppliant petition, but in a tone of remonstrance against the doing of hostile acts on behalf of the Armenians, who always had been under Roman dominion, or subject to a king chosen by the emperor. Peace, he reminded him, was equally for the interest of both, and it would be well for him not to look only at the present. He indeed had advanced with the whole strength of his kingdom against two legions, while the Romans had all the rest of the world with which to sustain the war. To this Vologeses replied nothing to the purpose, but merely that he must wait for his brothers Pecorus and Tiridates, that the place and the time of their meeting had been fixed on as the occasion when they would decide about Armenia, and that heaven had granted him a further honour, well worthy of the Arsacids, the having to determine the fate of the Roman legions. Messengers were then dispatched by Paetus, and an interview requested with the king, who ordered Vesessus, the commander of the cavalry, to go. Thereupon Paetus dwelt on the memories of the Luculi and Pompeii, and of all that the Caesars had done in the way of holding or giving away Armenia, while Vesessus declared that we had the mere shadow of possession and of bestowing, but the Parthians the reality of power. After much arguing on both sides, Monobasis of the Adiabeni was called the next day to be a witness to the stipulations into which they had entered. It was agreed that the legions should be released from the blockade, that all the troops should quit Armenian territory, and that the forts and supplies should be surrendered to the Parthians, and when all this had been completed, Vologeses was to have full permission to send envoys to Nero. Meanwhile Paetus threw a bridge over the river Arsenius, which flowed by the camp, apparently with a view of facilitating his march. It was the Parthians, however, who had required this, as an evidence of their victory, for the bridge was of use to them, while our men went a different way. Rumour added that the legions had been passed under the yoke, with other miserable disgraces, of which the Armenians had borrowed imitations. For they not only entered our lines before the Roman army began to retire, but also stood about the camp streets, recognizing and dragging off slaves or beasts of burden which we had previously captured. They even seized clothes and detained weapons, for the soldiers were utterly cowed and gave up everything, so that no cause for fighting might arise. Vologeses, having piled up the arms and bodies of the slain in order to attest our defeat, refrained from gazing on the fugitive legions. He sought a character for moderation after he had glutted his pride. Seated himself on an elephant, he crossed the river Arsenius, while those next to his person rushed through it at the utmost speed of their horses, for a rumour had gained ground that the bridge would give way through the trickery of its builders. But those who ventured to go on it found it to be firm and trustworthy." As for the besieged, it appeared that they had such an abundance of corn that they fired the granaries, and Corbulo declared that the Parthians, on the other hand, were in want of supplies, and would have abandoned the siege from their fodder being all but exhausted, and that he himself was only three days' march distant. He further stated that Paetus had guaranteed by an oath, before the standards, in the presence of those whom the king had sent to be witnesses, that no Roman was to enter Armenia until Nero's 
reply arrived as to whether he assented to the peace. Though this may have been invented to enhance our disgrace, yet about the rest of the story there is no obscurity, that in a single day Pratis traversed forty miles, leaving his wounded behind him everywhere, and that the consternation of the fugitives was as frightful as if they had turned their backs in battle. Corbulo, as he met him with his forces on the bank of the Euphrates, did not make such a display of his standards and arms as to shame them by the contrast. His men, in their grief and pity for the lot of their comrades, could not even refrain from tears. There was scarce any mutual salutation for weeping. The spirit of a noble rivalry and the desire of glory, emotions which stir men in success, had died away. Pity alone survived, the more strongly in the inferior ranks." Then followed a short conversation between the generals. While Corbulo complained that his efforts had been fruitless, and that the war might have been ended with the flight of the Parthians, Petus replied that for neither of them was anything lost, and urged that they should reverse the eagles, and with their united forces invade Armenia, much weakened, as it was, by the departure of Rologeses. Corbulo said that he had no such instructions from the emperor. It was the peril of the legions which had stirred him to leave his province, and as there was uncertainty about the designs of the Parthians, he should return to Syria, and even as it was, he must pray for fortune under her most favourable aspect, in order that the infantry, wearied out with long marches, might keep pace with the enemy's untiring cavalry, certain to outstrip him on the plains, which facilitated their movements. Paetus then went into winter quarters in Cappadocia. Vologeses, however, sent a message to Corbulo, requiring him to remove the fortresses on the further bank of the Euphrates, and to leave the river to be, as formerly, the boundary between them. Corbulo also demanded the evacuation of Armenia by the garrisons posted throughout it. At last the king yielded, all the positions fortified by Corbulo beyond the Euphrates were destroyed, and the Armenians, too, left without a master. At Rome, meanwhile, trophies for the Parthian war, and arches were erected in the centre of the Capitoline Hill, these had been decreed by the Senate, while the war was yet undecided, and even now they were not given up, appearances being consulted in disregard of known facts. And to hide his anxious fears about foreign affairs, Nero threw the people's corn, which was so old as to be spoilt, into the Tiber, with a view of keeping up a sense of security about the supplies. There was no addition to the price, although about two hundred ships were destroyed in the very harbour by a violent storm, and one hundred more, which had sailed up the Tiber, by an accidental fire. Nero next appointed three ex-councils, Lucius Piso, Ducenius Geminus, and Pompeius Paulinus, to the management of the public revenues, and invade at the same time against former emperors whose heavy expenditure had exceeded their legitimate income. He himself, he said, made the state an annual present of sixty million sesterces. A very demoralizing custom had at this time become rife, of fictitious adoptions of children, on the eve of the elections or of the assignment of the provinces, by a number of childless persons, who after obtaining, along with real fathers, praetorships and provinces, forthwith dismissed from paternal control the sons whom they had adopted. An appeal was made to the Senate under a keen sense of wrong. Parents pleaded natural rights and the anxieties of nurture against fraudulent evasions, and the brief ceremony of adoption. It was, they argued, sufficient reward for the childless to have influence and distinction, everything, in short, easy and open to them, without a care and without a burden. For themselves they found that the promises held out by the laws, for which they had long waited, were turned into mockery, when one who knew nothing of apparent solicitude or of the sorrows of bereavement could rise in a moment to the level of a father's long-deferred hopes. 
On this, a decree of the Senate was passed that a fictitious adoption should be of no avail in any department of the public service, or even hold good for acquiring an inheritance. Next came the prosecution of Claudius Timarchus of Crete, on such charges as often fall on very influential provincials, whom immense wealth has emboldened to the oppression of the weak. But one speech of his had gone into the extremity of a gross insult to the Senate, for he had repeatedly declared that it was in his power to decide whether the proconsuls who had governed Crete should receive the thanks of the province. Paetus Thracia, turning the occasion to public advantage, after having stated his opinion that the accused ought to be expelled from Crete, further spake as follows. It is found by experience, senators, that admirable laws and right precedents among the good have their origin in the misdeed of others. Thus the license of advocates resulted in the Cincian bill, the corrupt practices of candidates in the Julian laws, the rapacity of magistrates in the Calpurnian enactments. For in point of time guilt comes before punishment, and correction follows after delinquency. And therefore, to meet the new insolence of provincials, let us adopt a measure worthy of Roman good faith and resolution, whereby our allies may lose nothing of our protection, while public opinion may cease to say of us that the estimate of a man's character is found anywhere rather than in the judgment of our citizens. Formerly it was not only a praetor or a council, but private persons also, who were sent to inspect the provinces, and to report what they thought about each man's loyalty. And nations were timidly sensitive to the opinion of individuals. But now we court foreigners and flatter them, and just as there is a vote of thanks at any one's pleasure, so even more eagerly is a prosecution decided upon. Well, let it be decided on, and let the provincials retain the right of showing their power in this fashion. But as for false praise, which has been extorted by entreaties, let it be as much checked as fraud or tyranny. More faults are often committed, while we are trying to oblige, than while we are giving offence. Nay, some virtues are actually hated, inflexible strictness, for example, and a temper proof against partiality. Consequently, our magistrate's early career is generally better than its close, which deteriorates when we are anxiously seeking votes, like candidates. If such practices are stopped, our provinces will be ruled more equitably and more steadily. For as the dread of a charge of extortion has been a check to rapacity, so by prohibiting the vote of thanks will the pursuit of popularity be restrained. This opinion was hailed with great unanimity, but the Senate's resolution could not be finally passed, as the councils decided that there had been no formal motion on the subject. Then, at the Emperor's suggestion, they decreed that no one was to propose to any councils of our allies that a vote of thanks ought to be given in the Senate to propraetors or proconsuls, and that no one was to discharge such a mission. During the same consulship a gymnasium was wholly consumed by a stroke of lightning, and a statue of Nero within it was melted down to a shapeless mass of bronze. An earthquake, too, demolished a large part of Pompeii, a populous town in Campania. And one of the Vestal Virgins, Lelia, died, and in her place was chosen Cornelia, of the family of the Cossi. End of Book 15, Part 1